0: Gospel reading today is from Mark 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to preach them, teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. "'Get behind me, Satan,' he said." Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The Gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: I know you can hear me. I want to make sure they can hear me. Uh, Grace and peace to all of you who are in the room and those of you who are online. Uh, It's great to be here with you again um, and to share the Word of God with you. Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's September, and uh, this year, depending on where you live, we are inching back toward normalcy, uh, normalcy of calendar and rhythm of life. Schools are in session. Football season has begun. uh, The leaves are turning, on and on. It's also the time when churches try to overcome the summertime blues and and, uh, when everyone was away and and giving declined and all of that and they want to get some momentum and get going again, get moving, maybe even attract some new attendees to their congregation. So it's a curious Sunday for the church lectionary to give us our gospel reading from Mark 8. Maybe those responsible for that decision weren't aware of how critical it is to exude a positive message at this time of year. Or maybe they're wiser than we give them credit for. Imagine the banner in front of the church. It's back to church Sunday on September 12th. Come get fitted for your own personal cross. Now, part of the reason that tactic strikes us as absurd is because we intuitively believe that the real world doesn't function that way. Every aspect of life from our earliest days is forming us for upward mobility. And those mechanisms and structures in our society that propel us toward the top are naturally felt and are easily embraced every step of the way. We love them. We love relevance. We love the grand stage. And more than anything else, we love power and the halls of power. As a teenager in the 1990s,
0: <laughs>
1: I could not have imagined a career called influencer. Much less that being something to which so many people would aspire. I've often thought about that as I moved from job to job over the the years. I should have just been an influencer. Being relevant has become such a powerful identity marker that no one under the age of 40 can imagine not having a presence on social media. We love it, we love to be relevant. We love the grandiose, the spectacular as well. The story of the hero who gets revenge is so ingrained in our DNA, it would never occur to us to question the morality of it. Marvel superheroes, western cowboys, rogue soldiers and cops are perennial surrogates for our own adrenaline rush to get our pound of flesh or to give that person what's coming to them. But it's in the halls of power where we most feel home. And if anything is obvious in our dim, to our dim eyes these days, it's that everyone, everyone, everyone wants a seat at the table and they want to be heard and acknowledged. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, everything I've said about relevance and power and so forth doesn't sound very threatening because, well, that stuff is all out there in the world with the outsiders. But the Gospel of Mark is a bit tougher on us Christians, us followers of Jesus, than I would like to be. If it were up to me, I'd give us a pass, because hey, we're just doing our best, aren't we? But in Mark, Jesus is confrontational, and the cross is a favorite topic of discussion for. the Gospels, truth be told, and Mark in particular, what we expect to find is a lot of gentle, reassuring aphorisms from a man who resembles some guy from California, or maybe East Portland. He wears Birkenstocks. He alternates between just two outfits and maybe the same tunic. You can find him sitting in the corner with the shadows just covering his face ever so slightly and perfectly. And he only leans forward out of the shadows to offer his listeners the perfectly timed smile. See, that's, that's what we want to find. That's what we expect to find in the Gospels. And beyond that, we expect him to speak to us in gentle dulcet tones, that all our troubles seem to fade when, when we hear his voice in the light of his presence. I mean, we're on his team, right? Surely that's the way he speaks to us. We're the insiders. He judges the wicked people out there, but he rewards us because we were clever enough to see what a big deal he really is. But Mark doesn't see Jesus or us in quite that way. Mark is subversive. He sets us up, those of us who purport to be true followers of Jesus. And the rascal resorts to name calling. Blind, he calls us. Hard hearted. Turns out the people who think they're the insiders in Mark are the outsiders. And in today's reading, Through the voice of Jesus, he calls us Satan. I hope you're not getting mad at me. I didn't say it. I don't believe Jesus ever called the prostitutes or the tax collectors or even the Romans Satan. He reserved that title for the disciple closest to him. And so we discover to our utter dismay That we are the blind outsiders. I'm particularly struck by chapter 6, verse 52. The disciples, and by proxy, you and I, did not understand the miracle of the loaves and fishes because, quote, their hearts were hardened. Does that language sound familiar at all to you? Where else in the Bible do we find that terminology? And to whom does it apply? Think back to Exodus. Pharaoh. The disciples are Pharaoh? How? How can it be that the Messiah who has come to set the world right has gotten it so wrong in terms of the people he recruited? Or maybe he didn't get it wrong so much as they had the wrong idea about him. I don't believe the problem was a lack of clarity on Jesus' part. Now, to be sure, there were times when he spoke in parables and he used images and metaphors that were lost on the crowds and the disciples, but this isn't one of those times. Mark says that Jesus spoke plainly. You can see that in our Gospel reading. He spoke plainly about his impending torture and death, and he did it on multiple occasions. He didn't mumble it and quickly move on before they could figure out what he actually said. He didn't just slip it in as dinner was finishing one night. Now, I'll admit, when it comes to who God is, the nature of his kingdom, we lack a tremendous amount of information. And I spent my adult life pursuing answers to questions like that. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. God just doesn't tell us everything. And often what he does tell us takes a lifetime of learning even to begin to understand. But about this, this concrete reality of the cross, this isn't fuzzy at all. The identity of this man is completely wrapped up in his execution on this barbaric apparatus. You heard that in the first part of the reading. Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter, you're the Messiah. Jesus, good Peter, that's right. Now, keep it to yourself. Oh, by the way, they're gonna kill me for being Messiah. Peter, Jesus, stop being ridiculous. If you're the Messiah, which you've just confirmed you are, then you have to win. That's what Messiahs do. Messiahs have power. Messiahs defeat their enemy. And the Romans don't understand this roll over and play dead approach that you've got going on. They only understand the sharp side of a blade. So just practically speaking, Jesus, because this is the way the world works. If you want to be Messiah, you're just going to have to put your enemies to the sword. I can't even believe I'm having to explain this to you. But I did pull you aside... So, you wouldn't get embarrassed around the guys and especially the women who are following us. Jesus. Satan. If that's what you think, you are not on God's side. You are his mortal enemy. Go away, Peter. Leave me. Get behind me because if you try to stop me from getting fitted for my cross, you'll pay the price. Clear enough? I mean, here is the pinnacle of God's mission to save the world, and Jesus claims that the best way to get that done is to be humiliated and get slaughtered like a slave. I mean, Just imagine being Peter for a moment. What a huge disappointment. To be called Satan and to have his hopes for a new kingdom dashed? Right then? Maybe his life flashed before his eyes in that instant. He may have thought about the day he dropped his nets to follow the simple, compelling word from this man, Come follow me. He may have regretted that day. His heart may have skipped a beat when it occurred to him that if his Messiah was to be executed, well, surely his followers would be too. That was the standard practice in that day, actually. There were many insurrections against the Romans and many little-m messiahs who said God was about to overthrow these oppressors. All of those little messiahs died and the movements came to nothing. And Peter must have thought, well, that's us too. Peter was so disappointed in the Son of God. On the one hand, he seemed so promising healings, miracles, talk of a new and glorious kingdom. He spoke of eternal life, hope, and power over his enemies, everything he had wanted a God. But on the other hand, now he calls his followers Satan and speaks of his own impending execution on the cross. A cross of all things. Dear God, what have I gotten myself into? Peter must have thought. And I find it nothing short of incredible that Peter and the others kept following Jesus. Surely this event alone would have been enough to send him packing. He had high expectations, only to be met with great messianic disappointment. Now you may know the feeling... Jesus expecting to find a reliable resource for expunging trouble and suffering from our lives and gaining all the comforts and satisfaction that we could imagine. And like the old gospel hymn falsely promises, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And now that that's in your head and you can't get it out, you're welcome. I'm sorry to say, it's utter rubbish. You know why, right? Immediately after calling Peter Satan, Jesus turns to the crowd and he called them over. The phrase is an interesting one that Mark uses. It's a strong point of emphasis. It's not just saying Jesus said something to the people. He stopped what he was doing. He turned, gather around, come over here, listen to this you miss everything else, this is the thing I want you to get. I'll be poetic about some things, but not this one. I'm going to a cross in Jerusalem, and if you want to follow me, well, there's one that fits your back too. Don't miss it. No one can accuse Jesus of false advertising. There's no bait and switch here. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything. He clearly explains that a cross is for Him, but all followers have to get fitted for their own too. All followers. Now that should be clear enough, right? Well, apparently not. Because we just can't conceive of a world where bombing our enemies, cheating the competition, defending ourselves by any means necessary isn't just practically the way the world works. And if you rehearse the story of Christianity, and most recently, the history of evangelicals in this country, you'll discover that we have never lost our fondness for the halls of power And the free, uncompromising use of that power to get our way and to build our empires. And the cross has faded in a distant past for us. Maybe we still haven't heard it. Still, it's bizarre and more than a little disconcerting that Jesus puts the cross at the heart of His King. Why is the normal flow of life upended and we're forced to swim against the tide in a way that just, frankly, can be exhausting? Wouldn't it just be better if Jesus said, I'm bringing justice in the world, I'm going to wipe out my enemies, I'm going to force everyone to be kind and loving to each other. Just do that. Please. And the answer to that question takes us into the very life of God. The triune being of God is a perfect overflowing love for each divine person and also for the creation. When we sin and we continue to sin, we are opting for all that is not God, which includes the systemic and structural evils of a world that has embraced death instead of that overflowing, self-giving love. Turning away from God as our source of joy means that we turn in on ourselves. We opt for everything except Him. Relevance, pride, glory, and power. And if we're turned in on ourselves, then who becomes God? Well, we do. And as gods, all we can do is heap onto ourselves misery and emptiness until one day we involuntarily step into We spend a lifetime trying to gain, and it ends in loss. A life of money and comfort ends in ultimate poverty. Success leads to the worst possible failure. And as we rush headlong toward this bitter end, the cross of Christ plants itself in our way and refuses to allow us to advance. We embrace loss and death He insists on resurrection and life. And all we have to do is follow Him. Follow Him onto His cross and die to all that is not God. Follow Him into the tomb of baptism. Follow Him into resurrection life and resurrection living. But here's the thing about resurrection living. It never forgets that it must continue to carry a cross. Why? Because we are so prone to drop that cross on the side of the road and run back to all that is not God. See, the cross really is good news because it's the way that God sets the world right die to that, live to resurrection life. And each one of us must get fitted for our own personal cross. Now, it's not all going to look the same for each of us. The size and the weight will be different for every follower. But the trick is being constantly aware of its presence It's very easy with life in these United States, when it gets comfortable and prosperous, to forget. Well, we've been fitted with a cross. The cross tends to get light and we barely notice it as life gets more and more comfortable for us. But then something comes along that rocks us to the core an envelope from your spouse's lawyer, a diagnosis that shouldn't be given to young people, a church or a pastor that disappoints you, even hurts you, a pandemic, a loss of job and income, a son or a daughter who strays from God and follows the spirit of this age, And when all that starts to happen, the cross on our back begins to materialize again. And we glance over our shoulder and we think, where did you come from? Lord, why have you done this to me? What did I do to deserve it? This isn't what you promised me. And we spiral, don't we? Grief, despair, anxiety, loss of joy all ensue. The surprise of the cross on our back is what gets us. But for some, it doesn't go that way. Have you ever read the book of Acts carefully? There's a verse that's always jumped out at me. Acts 5.41. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Just kind of said it. Hey, they had them flogged. Big deal. Got beaten up. Bloody mess. Skin ripped apart. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. Do you know what they were doing? You remember what the text says? Rejoicing. Because they have been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Rejoicing. Now see, that's the cross in action. See, the cross doesn't bring death and sorrow. The cross brings life, resurrection life, rejoicing, wholeness. It turns us away from ourselves and open to the life of God in us and the world. I'm the third of four children. But before there was my younger brother, my mom gave birth to a daughter in 1973. My parents were 32 and 30 respectively. They had, against all odds in their unchurched, hard-nosed, blue-collar Tennessee family, come to faith, and they had followed God's call into church ministry. That in itself was a small miracle in my family. With only a few years of that ministry under their belt, with their non-Christian family watching, my sister was born. She had a lot of health issues from day one. But the doctor said, if she makes it five days, we have every reason to believe she will pull through. She died on day five. I think there was something about that early cross for my parents that oriented them to the life they were about to have. There were many more times where the cross on their backs would feel heavy. But they were never caught off guard. Just a quick glance over the shoulder. Oh yes, I remember you. Let's see what God does through all of this. And as the church and the world and their family watched, they plodded on in faith and joy and in ministry. I don't know of anyone in this world who laughs more than my parents do. They have no money, although they get by. Every day, my dad's mind slips away just a bit more as the dementia progresses. And strangely, as they near the end of their days, they realize that even though the cross has been felt, it's actually been pretty light. Getting fitted for your cross doesn't mean death ultimately for you. It means when death and darkness hinder your way, the cross reaches out and absorbs that death and darkness and brings instead resurrection life. So that no matter what we face, even if it's a flogging, we rejoice that we are in Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.